This is the, the final two sermons in our um, series through the book of Ruth, and uh, we are actually going to read a small portion of the end of chapter 3 and then down into chapter 4. And this is, um, this is uh, such a wonderful, wonderful portion of, of the book. And so this is God's word to you today. So remember, um, before we jump in, remember R- Ruth and Boaz just had a night together. And uh, now the plan is to try for Boaz to try to not let her be misperceived on what that all means for, for the community and, and what happened. And so Boaz puts this plan in place to protect her from this vulnerable position that she's in. And so starting in chapter 3, verse 14, it says, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor, and he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, that's Naomi, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders, Of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Oh, if it were that easy today, you know? Um, So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I uh, bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are all witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. 
that's God's word to you today. And uh, the, great, the great task of, uh, of preaching and opening God's word together each uh, Lord's Day, we, we celebrate the resurrection that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And there are so many cultural things in this text that we just read. And so what we need is the help of God to help us understand and interpret what we just read. And so I'm going to ask that you guys join me in prayer with that task and that God would reveal himself to us in uh, the details of this text. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, you have spoken to your people by your word throughout centuries, and we ask now that you would speak again, that as your servants uh, listen and as they are open to you and to what you have to reveal to them today, we ask that you would use this story to point us to Jesus Christ, that we we may find grace in the redemption of what he's done for us. And that Boaz and Ruth are types of what, what he's bringing to uh, all of humanity. But Lord, this, this story is so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And we learn so much from how Boaz operates and uh, lives his life. And so help us, help us to see that love does not insist on its own way. Help us to see the wisdom in relinquishing control. Help us to see that we don't have to be uh, worried or frantic and try to force force things to happen in this world, but that you bring all things about uh, in the way and the timing in which you want them to come about. And so show us that and uh, encourage us today. In Christ's name, amen. So this, this is a section where there, there are three main characters in Ruth. Remember, it's Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. And this particular section hyper-focuses in on Boaz and the main thing that he's, in doing, that he's doing in this section is that he's embodying love, what it looks like to love in this world, to love your community, to love the people that you're living with. Um, but he does that through the wisdom of not insisting on his own way. He loves through the wisdom of not insisting on his own way. And if that's the phrase I want, I want us to meditate on pretty much all morning. Uh, what does it mean to live your life in a way that doesn't insist on its own way? And we see from the text, he does that in, in three specific ways, through his shrewdness, through his selflessness, and through seeing his place in the sovereignty of God's grace. And we'll explain what we mean by that here in a, in a minute. But the, the first thing we see is Boaz's shrewdness. And so the first section Chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. To be shrewd, you know, a lot of times that has a negative connotation, but what I mean by shrewdness is to have the sharp powers of judgment and discernment for the sake of the other. And it's not just knowing what to do in a given situation, but how to do something and how to get something done for the benefit of other people. And so first we see what he's doing is that he's enacting wisdom so as to protect Ruth and her being misperceived by the community. And so he says, look, uh, wait here until morning, and I'm going to give you six measures of barley. Uh, the, that word for measure, no one really knows what it means. It's a lot of barley, most think. And um, when, you, when it's the morning, I want you to leave with the, this huge amount of barley so that it looks like 
you have been working all night and gleaning, and this is the reward for all your work. And so that's what she does to protect her from the misperception of the community. And so she comes home to Naomi, and Naomi is really blown away. And uh, Naomi says, her reply is like, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he settles this matter today. And what he's doing is that he's being, Boaz being super careful and smart in how he orients towards Ruth and towards his community. And then what we see in the next section in verses one through six is that he's a genius businessman. He's just genius. Boaz goes to the gate. So this is where business was done in the ancient world. It was like a community common space where everyone gathered. And it just so happened that the other redeemer shows up. He walks by. And Boaz comes to him, and he says, "Um, look, this land is in line for you first before me. And so do you want to buy it? Do you want to redeem it? And the guy says, yes, because he sees it as a bargain. And he goes forward in the presence of the elders, in the presence of the community. He says, if you want to redeem it, redeem it. He says, I do. And then in verse 5, what Boaz does is that he reveals what that means in a very shrewd way. Boaz says, In the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And we talked about what all that means last week in the line of, of men and families and how to perpetuate an inheritance. But once the Redeemer, who doesn't have a name in our passage, hears that, he says, that would actually be very bad for my own inheritance, so I can't redeem it, and he backs out. Um, when uh, I, I, was, I did this practice once with some trusted friends called the one and the four. And the way it works is that for one minute, you're sitting around with a bunch of people that that love you and, and care for you. And you say for one minute what you're about. And sort of like, this is who I am, almost like you're in an elevator speech, and this is what you want people to know about you. Like, hi, my name's Matt. I'm from, you know, Augusta, Georgia. I'm the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I have a wife and two children, that kind of stuff. But then for four minutes straight, and you can't stop, you have to say, but what I didn't tell you is, and you fill in the blank, and you just keep going for four minutes, and then you talk about it. You talk about what, what you said. Um, what Boaz is doing here is that he's, he's saying to the whole community, he's saying to the Redeemer, that I want the part of Ruth that, that people don't know about, and I also want to buy that part too, because I love her. And I don't want to back out once all the other stuff is revealed. The, the Redeemer that doesn't have a name didn't want that part of Ruth because it costs too much. And part of this strange business section in chapter 4 with like sandals and legal obligations shows us that Boaz is actually being very wise 
and paying attention to the fine print of his culture. The what I didn't tell you is all the stuff that's hidden, all the stuff that in our, we know we're, we all enact some level of shrewdness just to survive in the world. We don't tell everybody everything, and that's smart. Um, but the way of God moving towards you is that he says, I want, I want it all. Just like what Boaz is doing with Ruth. And on top of that, he's saying, I want it all, and I want all of you to be witnesses. I want everybody to see it. God is at work in all this legal stuff, all the legal details, but how it plays out in Boaz is his refusal, and this is how, this is how like, incredible this, this guy is, his refusal to insist on his own way. And this is where I want to focus the bulk of our time this morning. Boaz's love is evident because he's constantly relinquishing control in every way. And he's submitting himself to the regulations of his community. And he doesn't demand to get what he wants when he wants it. And he really, really wants Ruth. So where do we see that and and how does he do it? Well, he puts this lesser man, this lesser redeemer ahead of him. He actually goes and finds him and says, hey, you uh, you have rights to what I want desperately. And this guy, this false redeemer, is in it for the money, and yet Boaz very intentionally goes and finds him and says, hey, you, you can take the thing that I really, really desire. And you, you just got to put yourself in Boaz's shoes there. Like, he really, really wants to marry Ruth, and if this guy takes him up on the deal, he loses out on getting married to the one he loves. And what we see is that Boaz is entrusting himself in the process of his culture, of his community. Which means he's open to being misguided in his own perception of reality. And he needs the community to come around him to help him. He wants to marry Ruth, but he's willing to walk. And so he brings his desires out in the open, but he submits himself to the will of the community. Now look, um, if, you, if you are dating right now, or you want to be dating, or you're thinking about getting married to somebody, um, or if you are married, it doesn't really matter, um, you, you must realize how important it is to not insist on your own way. You have to. Meaning, let's say you're dating. There may be things that you really, really, really desire. That you want things uh, to work out in a particular way, or you want to speed the timing of something up, and you really want that person that you love to respond to you in a specific way. Look at Boaz here. He clearly desires Ruth, but he is very, very patient to fulfill that desire. And what can affirm his desires when it's actually time for them to be fulfilled? This is so important, y'all. What can affirm that? The law and the community. The law of God and the community. 
that when you are looking to those, when, when you are in a relationship and you are actually listening to God's word and you're listening to the people in your life that love you, you're in, a, you're in a wise place. You're in a place where you're like, I'm not going to insist on my own way. I've been in ministry long enough to know, and you learn this very early on, that when a person starts doing whatever they want to do, like following the course of their passions just without limitation, it's not very long after that that they begin to have questions about the Bible and questions about the community that surrounds the Bible. And the reason why is because you've thrown out all sort of wisdom and authority in your life and you're insisting on your own way. And so, of course, the Bible's not going to make sense because you're cutting against the grain of which you were encoded with in your own being. That God actually says, when you put me first, second things get enhanced. And we'll talk about that more here in a second. But guys, if you are dating... um, if you are in a relationship with somebody, limitations are so, like they are so good, so good. Restraint within the bounds of a given culture or community actually intensifies pleasure. And that's why so many in our world right now are, are hollow and empty today because we, we have said as a culture, I'm not just talking about outside the church, I'm talking about inside the church too, We have said, I, as the individual, deserve what I desire, and I'm going to get it when I want it. And what that does to the human heart is that it makes us empty. It makes us lifeless. And again, this happens all the time in religious circles and in non-religious circles. The beautiful thing about Christianity is that it looks out at others and it, it can even look out at an enemy. And it says, you first. Your needs before mine. You may go. I will not insist my will upon you. And the reason why a Christian can do that even with an enemy is because we believe that this is exactly how Jesus has responded to us. That he does not insist on his own way. That's how he loves us. This is one of the marks of love. It's so patient. And it does not have to be in control. Because its whole purpose isn't to be self-protective. And this is the the strange thing about life, y'all. The moment you sacrifice yourself is the moment you find yourself. And this interesting thing happens when that is your mentality in your friendships, in your family, in your marriage. It's the conundrum of the gospel and how you live. When you are not expecting a return on your investment with people, you can love without strings attached. You can fully love them and and be free in that love. And far from weakening love, it's actually the strongest love in the world because it's how God is. This is how God is in and of himself, inside the Trinity. He didn't create people because he was lonely. He didn't create people because he needed love back. His love is independent of our response to him. 
And it's very hard for us to wrap our brains around that, that, that he doesn't need us to reciprocate anything. It makes him sad when we don't. It hurts his heart, but he does not need us to do anything. And if you take that love into the very center of how you operate with other people, watch it transform everything. Beginning with you. Because almost all of us go into this world, we go into relationships wanting some form of a kickback, wanting some form of reciprocation. What this means, especially if somebody that you love isn't really loving you back, when they don't love you back and you're expecting them to or you're wanting them to, when you believe in the gospel, you can say, it really hurts when you don't love me back, but I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. My love is independent of your response to me. Look, uh, I want to give you three very, I want to be very, very practical this morning. I want to give you three very practical examples in different spheres of our life with, with how this is this can play out. Let's say you, you're the bathroom cleaner in your family. That's what you do. You clean the toilets. That's like kind of your thing. Um, and you've been doing it for like a couple of years now, and um, you're good at it. You can get it done quick. And uh, one day, somebody in your family says, hey, can you do the, the laundry and a bunch of yard work too? And you blow up at that person and you say, do I have to do everything around here? What you need to know about yourself in that moment is that you are serving and loving your family, wanting some sort of return. You're serving and loving, and the gospel isn't at work in your heart if that's your response. Because the gospel says, hey, I want to do this, I can do it, and it's a blessing to my family, and that's it. It stops there. You're not, you're not wanting somebody to say thank you. You're not wanting some sort of affirmation. You're not wanting some sort of recognition because you're serving out of abundance, not out of lack. Does that make sense? Let's say you're dating. Let's say you're dating, and maybe it's a little manipulative. Who knows? But you, you're always the one that's initiating. You're always the one sending texts or snaps or whatever you do these days. Um, and you decide one day, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything today. And I, I just want to see if they actually care enough to text me first, okay? And noon comes around, and then it's 2 p.m., and they haven't texted you. And then you get frantic, right? And you start snooping around on them, and you think maybe there was somebody else, and you're, like, freaking out. What's, what's happening? You're loving, expecting something in return. Your love has strings attached. And what the gospel says is that, okay, I'm type A. I'm good at communicating. I, I'm, going, I'm going to do that, not expecting some form of return on that investment. Again, far from diminishing love, that's actually the strongest type of love. When you say, I will love you, I will give you myself, but I'm not expecting any particular thing in return. The reason why that's the strongest type of love is because that's how God loves us. That's how he made you. And third, and uh, this is from uh, the scripture in 2 Samuel 16, Shimei uh, is in the family of Saul. There's this guy named Shimei in the family of Saul. Now remember, King David, the whole kingdom was stripped from the family of Saul and given to King David. 
And that meant for Saul's whole family, they lost their inheritance, they lost their prestige, they lost, their, they lost everything. And David comes on some bad circumstances in his own family. His son turns on him, and he gets kicked out of Jerusalem. And Shimei, this guy from the family of Saul, he starts cursing David. And he says, see, this is what you did to my family, and the same thing is happening to your family. He's like flinging dust on David. And David's mighty men say, David, you're the strongest person in the world. Let me cut off his head. Can we kill him? And what David says, and it's so, so very interesting, he says, don't do that. Don't don't stop his cursing. And the reason why is because God might turn his curses into blessings. So there's no need to retaliate. And y'all, I think our whole world needs to think about that for a long time. That what David is showing us is how to relinquish control just like Boaz. And you can only do that if you believe that God is in control of all things. Even the curses. And the whole, this whole passage is showing us Boaz's place in God's gracious plan. Sometimes there's absolutely no way to understand what God is doing in your life. There's no way to understand it on this side. But what he promises to do is that he promises to be with you, and he promises that in the end he will turn what appears to be a curse into a blessing. And so you must be careful. I think part of the application here is that we must all be very careful not to exit unpleasant circumstances too quickly. As one of my friends says, you don't have to stay like in abusive relationships. You don't have to be a doormat, but you don't have to be a dictator either. And that's the tension that Boaz holds. He's selfless but shrewd. He took what was available to him, but he did it in the right way and in God's timing. And how he did it is that he submitted himself to the various possible outcomes within the sovereignty of God. And the only way to have that level of peace when so much is on the line, and there was a lot on the line for Boaz, he loved Ruth, the only way to do that is to believe that ultimately God is so, so gracious and kind in how things play out. Boaz is seeing his place in the grace of God's sovereignty. Now we need to um, wrap up here, but you know when Rachel and Leah are mentioned in verse 11, these were the matriarchs of the people of God. But they have, if you go back and read their stories in Genesis, they had a lot of baggage, a lot. And if that wasn't enough, there was also a lady mentioned named Tamar. And I, there's a part of me that's like, I don't know if you should read that section of the Bible today. Um, you ever seen Jerry Springer? That's kind of like what Tamar is like. It's like a Jerry Springer episode gone bad. And I think the reason why these three women are mentioned is to show that, you know, Bethlehem, this whole community is looking back at these women and they're, they're saying, Ruth, we want you to be blessed like these women. And I think part of what's happening is that the author is showing that the story of Ruth and Boaz are, 
they're turning the whole story of Israel from a curse to a blessing. And it comes out in you know, the pedantic details like taking sandals off. But that's the deeper reality of what's going on. God is turning the whole story of Israel into a blessing. And that's what he wants to do with you. Look, you may sit here and, and think, um, you think about your life. You think about even this morning. And, and you're like, I am so terrible at relinquishing control. Like, I insist on my own way all the time with the people that I love the most, and I don't know how to stop. Like, I'm so, jud- I'm so judgmental. I-, I hold things over people's head. I keep score. And I don't know how to, l- to love like this. I can't, I-, I can't seem to do it. And in many ways, you might, you might feel cursed by your own dysfunction. And if it doesn't come from within, other people may have hurt you. That was definitely true with these three women. They were bitter, or they became bitter by their circumstances. And what God does in the midst of that is that he comes into the life of somebody like that, and he says, I actually have a love that's stronger than the ways in which you have been cursed. That's what it means to be redeemed. I've got a love for you that works best when you do nothing for me in return. That's crazy, y'all. That you actually understand the gospel most when you see your lack. And Jesus, our true redeemer, if you just read his life, the, the amount of people he puts in place of other human beings and says, you think you love her? You know, that's what, what Jesus is doing is he's being the true redeemer and he lets our hearts go after false redeemers. They're called idols. So that we will learn from the inside that no one will pay for our hearts like he will. No one. No one will pay the debt. No one, when we say the four minutes of things we didn't tell you, will say, we still love her. We still want her. We still want him. But Jesus will. And the reason why is because that's what his blood does. He pays for that. He wants all of us because he loves us. And we can tell him things that we hide from others. And his grace covers that too. His grace can turn hypocrites into people of integrity. And he says, my, gra- my grace can take people full of sexual misconduct and shame and give them places of honor and healing. And the reason why is because that's the point of the whole world. The whole world is full of grace. I love um, doing weddings. And the reason why I love doing weddings is because for a split moment, you see life as, as it could be without shame and anxiety and dysfunction. And it's almost like human beings... It's a very peculiar time in the life of a couple, their wedding day, because it's almost like, oh my gosh, like you guys are so radiant before your community. You're so free with one another. And it's almost like this is life when grace takes over. This is life fully redeemed when grace is poured back into the relationship. 
And y'all, when Jesus Christ receives the church at the end of time, as we walk down the aisle to him, all things will be realigned. All things will be changed. And that's your destiny. That's where it's headed. That God is realigning all things in his grace. And it starts with individual lives like Ruth and Boaz. But as we'll see, their, their story is this, just this foreshadowing of a much larger story where God redeems the whole world. And the point of our lives today isn't to like try to force ourselves into being well-adjusted or to not insist on our own way, but to realize that, y'all, God really does love people who struggle. God really does love um, those who are on the outside, those who in the end say, I need a Redeemer. Like, I need grace. And to the degree that you admit that will be the degree of love you show to other people. And it will be the degree that you are able to become selfless. And the gospel is the only thing strong enough to guide us into a life that does not insist on its own way. And that's where it's headed, y'all, for you to stand before the face of God. And the question is going to be, is it your way or my way? Because God's way looks like Jesus. And you want that. Let's pray. Father, um, we ask that you would give us the face of Jesus Christ, our true Redeemer, and that the, the many ways, as we come to confession, the many ways that our hearts have gone after those who will not, uh, love us in our darkness and love us in our sin. Um, Lord, show us that you have been waiting for us to come back to you and that we would and that you are so kind in that you allow others to to say, okay, if, if you think you can love my people like I love my people, then try it. And no one can, Lord. It's only you. And so let us come back to you. Let's come back to you in confession of sin and at this table. And let us give that love that doesn't insist on its own way uh, to each other today. In Christ's name, amen.